welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm Matthew Bruckner, an associate professor at Howard University School of Law. My guest tonight is Sheldon Evans, an assistant professor at St. John's University School of Law. And we're going to talk tonight about his new article, Categorical Non-Uniformity. Sheldon, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Matt. Um, I, I really appreciate uh, the opportunity uh, to talk about my latest piece, uh, as you said, Categorical Non-Uniformity. Can you tell us uh, what is categorical non-uniformity, the article? What's your sort of thesis? What's your you know, elevator pitch? Why should people listen to the rest of this podcast? Yeah, so uh, the 10,000-foot the view is um, it, it's an interesting piece that melds together um, a number of different areas of the law. Um, it goes through criminal sentencing. It goes through immigration law. Um, and there's also hints of federalism uh, in there as well. And basically what uh, the thesis of the article is, is there's this thing called the categorical approach. And it's a method that uh, federal judges use to determine if a state criminal conviction uh, can carry a federal uh, a federal consequence, so a federal uh, prison sentence or maybe a federal immigration consequence. Uh, the problem, though, is when you have 50 different states that define their criminal laws differently, uh, that leads to uh, different federal outcomes. So uh, you have non-uniformity in how the categorical approach is being applied, uh, depending on whether somebody may have a criminal conviction in California or whether somebody may have a criminal conviction from Iowa, uh, the differences in those state laws can create differences in federal consequences. And that can be the difference between whether somebody gets deported or not deported, or whether somebody gets a um, a longer prison sentence or a shorter prison sentence. So um, it's it's actually quite impactful uh, in in several different areas of the law. And uh, in this paper, I've just focused on uh, criminal sentencing and immigration, where we see that uh, phenomena. Uh, so that's great. So I, you know, I think the article has a bunch of really good examples that you know the very same criminal underlying criminal conduct, you know, um, perpetuated in or um, in Iowa versus in Missouri can have uh, dramatically different outcomes because the law in Iowa may be different from the law in Missouri or, for example, California. Um, and that just, you know, um, you, you suggest is uh, strikes at our sense of unfairness um, and also um, um, is antithetical to some of the um, rationales for this uh, categorical approach. So could you maybe articulate what some of those are? Like, why, why do we, you know, you don't like this categorical approach uh, and you want to change it. Uh, why do we have it in the first place? Yeah, so uh, there's there's a couple of scholars that have looked at this and there, there's a little bit of disagreement on who we should blame for this problem. Uh, some scholars say that this is the fault of Congress because Congress wrote these federal laws, and in the federal laws, it, it explicitly says, you know, um, somebody will be deported, 
if they commit this type of state crime. Uh, so some people say it's Congress's fault and they should fix it. Um, I focus on the categorical approach, which is more um, a, a, an issue of federal judges interpreting uh, these these congressional statutes in a way that is inconsistent with um, with the uh, with the overall intent of uniformity of federal law. Um, one of the one of the big reasons that we have um, you know federal sentencing laws. One of the reasons that we have um, a federal immigration system is so that. Uh, people are treated the same across all state jurisdictions. Um, so, um, you know, the my one of my arguments is that um, if you commit the same criminal conduct in two sister states, you know, uh, Iowa versus Missouri, uh, they're they're separated by maybe a a twenty minute drive, depending on where you live in those states. Uh, but there, there are examples of if you commit a, for example, a burglary in Iowa versus if you drive 20 minutes and commit that same burglary in Missouri, uh, you will have different federal outcomes when it comes to uh, certain federal statutes, certain federal sentencing statutes, and um, also in the immigration context as well. Um, and, and that that seems to be inconsistent with the goal, with a couple of goals. Number one, um, to set up a federal system of laws that has uniformity across jurisdictions. Uh, but also when we get into a little bit of punishment theory in, in criminal law, uh, the, the uh, kind of the, the notion of fairness, the notion of justice that we are punishing people uh, based on uh, certain a certain set of actions that they have taken that has somewhat broken uh, the social contract. Um, whereas under this system, where uh, punishment is not based on the actions of an offender, which seems to comport with our notions of justice and fairness, but really punishment is based on where this person happened to be when they committed a particular crime. Uh, and, and so that, that's an inconsistency that I, I try to tease out in the paper. Um, and ultimately I, I try to fix with, with some uh, novel solutions. So I think, I think you do a good job of that, uh, explaining the differences that, as you did uh, here to um, about the same underlying criminal conduct having different uh, different results. Um, so that is really though a, a problem of differences across states rather than within a state, right? Uh, and so you know the very same criminal conduct uh, without a federal enhancement might also similarly have a, a different. Um, sentence or punishment that carries with it in Iowa than in Missouri. Um, and so why is it, uh, right? So that, that already is the case uh, because of our, uh, our federal system. Um, so why is it a problem uh, that there are these federal enhancements that, that differ on a state-by-state basis? Yeah. So uh, you raise a, a good point about um, the state punishments, 
So if, right, if, if you commit a, let, let's stick with our Iowa burglary, uh, Iowa and Missouri burglary example, um, right? If you commit a burglary in Iowa, Iowa has the sovereignty and the jurisdiction. Maybe they want to sentence you to 10 years in state prison. Do the same thing in Missouri. Missouri can sentence you to five years based on their law. And we all recognize that's okay because, you know, states have the police power, uh, especially in criminal law, to determine punishments for its citizens. Uh, Now, when you when you take that to the federal level, however, um, you know, when, when when two different sovereigns are punishing differently. Uh, we accept that as, like you said, a part of our federal system and sovereignty of states. But when you have one sovereign, the federal government, punishing two similar people differently, that's where I think uh, the the problem comes in. Uh, and especially when you look at some of the um, some of the legislative history. Uh, of the federal sentencing guidelines, uh, and this is, you know, the, the guidelines were instituted back in the 1980s. Uh, when you look at uh, some of the reasoning behind why do we want these complicated federal sentencing guidelines, uh, one of the reasons explicitly stated was we want it to be uniform. We want to make sure, and, and what does uniform mean? Well, uh, uh, according to the, the legislative history, uniformity for the most part meant we want to make sure that um, similar offenders and people who are committing similar conduct with some similar backgrounds are punished similarly. Uh, and, you, you know, it was a it was a, a big concern that there was a lot of um, disparate sentencing. And we unfortunately, we still see that today, but the sentencing guidelines were meant to cut down on um, on these these disparate sentences based on um, kind of irrelevant differences between uh, between criminals. So uh, my argument is, you know, the, the difference between where somebody happened to commit a previous crime, whether they committed the same conduct in Iowa versus the same conduct in Missouri, that shouldn't justify the federal government treating those two offenders differently. Um, If Iowa and Missouri separately want to give different state punishments, that's federalism. If the federal government wants to give them two um, two different sentences, even though they committed the same conduct just because they lived in two different states, uh, that seems to be exactly contrary to what uh, the sentencing, the federal sentencing guidelines uh, were meant to root out over 30 years ago. Yeah, see, as a not a criminal law person, I find this fascinating. So I'm primarily a bankruptcy person, increasingly sort of consumer law and student loans. But in the bankruptcy context, it's a well-known I was going to say problem, but uh, issue or thing that happens that um, that people file cases in jurisdictions where the the laws, you know, you know, 
people might say well developed uh but you know what they mean is uh, they know what the outcome is going to be uh there's judges there that uh, will you know are more likely to give them the outcome they want uh, and of course with bankruptcy they get to choose uh, where they fly I mean, this is not of course they get to choose where they file more or less um these companies um and so um this issue in criminal law of trying to you know create national uniformity at least from a bankruptcy lawyer seems like a um, bit of a fool's errand this idea of uniformity seems um impossible to achieve and there's something you get into in the article right uh, you you talk about the sort of varied and contested definitions of uniformity and about whether it's possible so you talk a little bit more about that you know um you you talked a little bit about the sort of the statute but you know um and why uniformity should be prioritized. But uh, can you expand a little bit on what are these sort of competing notions of uniformity uh, that exist in um, the scholarship and in criminal law more generally? Sure, sure. And I'm I'm actually glad you brought up bankruptcy because uh, maybe this is an opportunity for me to learn from your expertise because, um, you know, like you said, you know, bankruptcy is perhaps another example of, where you have a federal overall federal system, but and you'll have to tell me if this is right or wrong. You know, different states uh, define property differently, and maybe based on those state definitions, you could get more favorable. You know, that could affect the federal outcome in a bankruptcy case. Absolutely. Um, and I, I know that's also the case in um, other contexts of property when it comes to federal takings. You know, again, you, it, you know, there, there are so many instances where the outcome of a federal, uh, of, of a federal case is, um, is based on, uh, is based on the, the specific definitions of substantive state law. And so this is just kind of another one of those um, you know, from a really broad perspective, uh, another one of those interactions between federal and state law that uh, I think at least produces um, odd outcomes. But but, you know, so let me let me start being a law professor and mm-hmm. actually answer your questions. But but I, I do find uh, the bankruptcy example um, interesting. So. Uh, one of the problems with writing an article about uniformity, and, and I say this in the paper, the irony of uniformity is that it's not uniform. There are there are different ways and different definitions of uniformity that uh, that you could think of, uh, and, and this comes up in some of the scholarship as uh, as well as uh, in some of the uh, some of the court cases, uh, especially out of the Supreme Court. So uh, one version of uniformity, uh, the, the version that I think has um, more precedent behind it and, and more kind of legislative history behind it is um, the, you know, a, a common maxim that you may have heard and, and other law students and professors may have heard um, to treat similar cases similarly or to treat similar offenders similarly. And there's a million different ways you can cut that. And, you know, this is, uh, this is why sentencing is, is quite complex. You know, what does a similar case mean, right? That could have several different aspects. That could be similar conduct. That could be similar uh, defendants. 
And how do you cut that? Well, you know, are they, do they have the same hair? Is that relevant? Or, you know, do they have the same educational background? Is that relevant? Um, And so, you know, treating similar cases similarly in and of itself is, is even hard to define. Um, And I try to narrow that by saying, well, at least we should treat similar conduct similarly. Because again, if we're connecting punishment to what this person did, what, what, what was their conduct? How did it offend society uh, that justifies the punishment? Um, I at least think that conduct is a really important aspect of, of um, punishment. And so when we talk about treating similar cases similarly, um, I try to narrow that a little bit by at least saying, you know, similar conduct should be punished similarly along that uh, along that same vein. Uh, now, another competing uh, version of uniformity is uh, is kind of a, a uniform having a uniform rule that's applied the same in every case. So, uh, and, and that's the argument for the current categorical approach. So you have a, a similar rule, same rule called the categorical approach, and you apply it the same way in every case. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean you get similar outcomes. You can still get disparate sentencing outcomes, but as long as you're applying the same rule in the same way to all cases, uh, for some uh, scholars and, and judges, that is enough to fulfill kind of this ideal of uniformity in the federal system, um, which, which I, um, I, I don't think is consistent with some of the sentencing goals that I, that I mentioned before. So that's interesting. So that I mean, it's been a long time since I took legal philosophy, but that makes me really think about sort of Horton Sachs and legal process, um, and um, which was really you know uh, ascendant, um, you know maybe when some of these laws were um, uh, were being drafted, and maybe uh, and certainly some when some of these judges uh, were in law school, and maybe that helps explain some of the um, you know descriptively some of the outcome you're seeing as well. Um, so I I think that it's um, it's interesting your your approach about um, criminalizing the, the similar uh, conduct uh, or having the same result for similar uh, conduct, um, and, um, and and in part because I mean I think you are advocating for um, you know sort of a judicial solution, um, but whether it's judicial or legislative, you're really I think asking and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but for a, sort of a federal definition of the requisite underlying criminal conduct. Is that right? You want to sort of, uh, you know, define yeah. uh, what what those sort of problematic actions are? Yeah. So um, I I think that um, you know so so many scholars have um, you know p- part of the problem with these statutes again whether you think it's a um, a legislative issue or a judicial issue um, is kind of the ambiguity of the statutes. Um, you know, so for example, uh, one of the, the now infamous sentencing statutes is called the Armed Career Criminals Act. Uh, it goes by ACCA. 
And that's a, a statute that says, you know, if you, if you um, have a prior conviction for a violent felony, uh, you can get a federal sentencing enhancement. And so the problem is, well, what state crimes qualify as these violent felonies? And so courts go off on, you know, down that rabbit hole. Um, and, um, you know, under under the immigration statute, um, a common uh, a common deportable offense is for an aggravated felony. And so, OK, well, now we you know, courts have to go down the rabbit hole of what is an aggravated felony. So. Uh, just interrupt for a second. But just to be clear, like aggravated felony is just not defined, right? That's why courts are sort of diving into going down these rabbit holes. You're saying is that you know what 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 are the underlying conduct is just not specified by Congress in the statute, right? Well, it in in some cases it's more defined than others, but but for example, Congress will say something like, "Well, we think that burglaries are an aggravated felony, or we think burglaries are." you know, a violent felony under one of these statutes. And that seems simple enough un- until you realize, right, the original problem that we've been raising is, well, 50 different states define burglary uh, sometimes in very materially different ways. And so, so some scholars have said, well, the way you can fix that is just go back to Congress or have an agency just make a, a long list of all of the state crimes that would qualify as as these um, aggravated felonies or these these violent felonies under these statutes, and then you have a list that's you know a hundred two hundred pages long of all of these state statutes, and then you can just check boxes. Uh, and I I think that that runs some political risk. Um, I, I, you know, that, that always runs the risk of legislators being wary of missing some important, uh, some important egregious offense that they didn't include. And then the democratic process wreaks havoc on their, their reelection, which, which, which is why I think that Congress somewhat, uh, as in many cases, kind of left this a little bit more vague uh, for courts to fill in the holes and uh, and that's what the courts did by creating this categorical uh, categorical approach, which um, it's it, it gets a little bit uh, kind of into the details here. But but let me do my best shot of trying to explain how courts kind of walk through this, um, and, and because I, I I think that leads to some of my solutions um, in trying to simplify this process. Um, so, uh, the burglary example, uh, what, what federal courts do is they say, okay, well, Congress said burglary qualifies as one of these bad felonies, uh, that qualifies for this federal, uh, sentence or this federal consequence. So, uh, what we're going to do is we're going to figure out the federal definition of burglary. And we're going to consult all of these law books and dictionaries. So we're going to have the federal elements of burglary. We're going to put that on one side of the paper. And then we're going to figure out, okay, well, this person, this defendant before us, he committed a burglary in Missouri. So 
let's find out the elements of Missouri burglary, the three, four elements, and then let's match them up. We put those elements on two sides of the paper. Are, is Missouri burglary sufficiently um, similar, and do they, does it match to the federal generic elements of burglary? If they match, then great. The Missouri burglary counts as one of these felonies that can trigger this federal um, th- this federal consequence. Uh, if the elements of Missouri burglary do not match, then this cannot count as you know going towards this federal sentence. So, um, and and that's where we run into the issues of well, Missouri defines has these four elements for burglary. Iowa has these three. So if you committed this burglary in one of these jurisdictions, one of them may match with the federal definitions, and that means you're deported. One of them may not match, and that means, you know, uh, pray to whatever God you believe in and thank them, because that means you are not deported. Not based on the actual conduct that may make you you know, dangerous or that may make you a recidivist or whatever, but simply based on where you happen to uh, commit that offense based on that state's elements of the crime. Can you say more about that? So what I'm understanding is that, you know, let's say the federal burglary statute has elements one, two, and three. Iowa's has elements one, two, and four, and Missouri's has one, two, three, and four. Uh, and so my understanding is that um, the um, Missouri, the second one that has, you know, an extra element but satisfies all three elements of the federal statute, that would be, you know, a sufficient match uh, and therefore you'd get the federal enhancement. But because Iowa defines burglary as one, two, four and doesn't leave – leaves out three, that in Iowa you would um, uh, not be um, – you would not get the, the federal enhancement. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So that that's right. Um, it it's really it really comes down to um, the federal courts burning a lot of paper and and shockingly a lot of time uh, because you would be shocked in how much judges complain about this, um, which is kind of another section of my paper of judges saying how um, how inefficient this process is. But uh, so it comes down to figuring out what are the federal elements figuring out what are the state elements, and then playing a matching game. And um, if if they match, great. If they don't match, doesn't count. And so the Iowa burglar uh, would not receive that federal punishment. The Missouri burglar would. But so that's Though, right, so my example, I guess, uh, the Iowa burglar did uh, one, two, and four and didn't do three. But in uh, for your example, for, for it to have this sort of um, effect of, sort of seeming sort of unfair, it has to be that the Iowa burglar did one, two, three, and four as well, right? Because the conduct has to be the same in Iowa versus in Missouri. And so what is it that I'm, that I'm sort of missing here that, um, uh, so it's just, is it because the person isn't, convicted of this uh, or there's no there's no evidence of this third element uh it doesn't get brought out at trial um right um why, why is let me put it differently why is this process so tedious for judges because i'm thinking you know this 
ACA uh, has defined a, a burglary, I think you said, as sort of a problem for a long time. And so I would think that like figuring out what is the federal federal definition of burglary, like that, that wouldn't take all that much time because they've been doing it for years and years already. Um, and so what is so time consuming about this for judges? Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because it, um, I, I should clarify, um, I, I should clarify this point that um, under the categorical approach, conduct does not matter. Uh, judges uh, and judges complain about this as well. Uh, judges are not allowed. They are they are specifically prohibited from looking at the actual conduct of what the Iowa burglar did. Mm-hmm. They cannot look at the criminal record. All they can look at is the Iowa statute of, you know, I'll, I'll throw out a random number, you know, statute 108.3. What are the statutory elements? That's all they can look at. So, uh, and many judges have complained um, some somewhat along the same lines that, that I am, um, you know, uh, kind of bringing to light in this paper that that just seems, uh, it seems odd that you wouldn't allow a judge to, uh, to look at the actual criminal conduct when determining this federal punishment. So, um, it's not a matter of, you know, whether or not this fact was brought up at trial or there was evidentiary issues. It's just a matter of judges are only allowed to um, look at the state elements. They're not allowed to dig deeper into the actual conduct, which understandably many judges are not a big fan of. Uh, But the the second part of your question, uh, which is also important, is what, what is making this so time consuming? Uh, where you know one judge uh, went as far as to say it, it's one of the most taxing statutes that uh, the federal judiciary has to deal with, talking about ACA and talking about how to apply the categorical approach. So you're you're right when it comes to uh, determining the federal definition of a crime. So there have been many cases on burglary. And the Supreme Court gave a definition of burglary. So that's the federal definition and all federal courts follow that. Um, now, that that those definitions aren't always readily available for other crimes. But, you know, once a federal court says it, especially the Supreme Court, great, we can all be on the same page. Uh, now, when you start to try to figure out the state elements, this is this is where we start going down a rabbit hole. Of, of increasing complexity uh, based on many decisions of the Supreme Court over the past, uh, you know, 20 or so years. So uh, when trying to figure out what are the state elements, um, so you can look at the statute of that state, and um, you also have to distinguish between what are actual statutory elements and what are the um, mere means that a, a statute may define? So um, if a statute says you have to, um, you, you have to, you know, uh, commit a burglary in some type of structure, um, 
you know, that that could be an element. But if a statute goes on and says, places a comma and says you could burglar a stat or I'm sorry, you could burgle a structure, you could burgle a house, you could burgle a car or you could burgle an airplane. Uh, courts have said, well, wait a second, those aren't separate elements. Those are separate means of fulfilling the one element of burglaring a structure. These are just different types of structures you could burgle. Uh, And so courts have to really go in with a scalpel to figure out, well, is this statute listing different elements or is this statute just listing different factual means to fulfill one of the elements? And so courts, you know, burn a lot of paper doing that. Um, and then there's also um, another uh, another kind of level of complexity, which is um, divisibility, what the courts call divisibility. So again, if we're looking at the state statute, uh, there are some states, um, you know, God bless them, that... Uh, <laughs> define statutes very oddly and define these crimes very oddly. Um, And uh, what they will do is they will, in one statute, they will list um, alternate elements. So they'll say, here's one way you could be, um, you know, you could be guilty of the crime, or here's another set of elements that you could be guilty of the crime. So courts have to figure out, wait a second, one of these alternatives fits the federal definition. One of these alternatives does not. So now we have to figure out which one of these alternates the defendant was convicted of. So now we need to do a modified categorical approach. And this kind of goes down another rabbit hole. Um, and judges don't know all the time because they're, you know, they're very smart people, but they're not experts in these state laws. Uh, you know, is the are these elements versus means? Or is this divisible? Do we have to look at the record? And when do these different things trigger? And and that has created a lot of complexity in trying to parse out the differences of these state laws. Um, and uh, there there are a lot of judges who have gone on the record uh, in dissents, in concurrences, basically saying. Uh, we disagree with this approach. We think it's inefficient. We think it uh, taxes judicial economy, but we are uh, we respect precedent, and so we will follow this approach, um, even though uh, they don't like it. Um, so they they are they are good soldiers in in that sense. So. I- all right, so judges don't like it. Um, the Supreme Court keeps weighing in. I think you said uh, thirteen times over the last twenty or so years, uh, and I think in the paper you suggest that uh, they perhaps are making it worse and not better, um, but certainly are keep diving back into it to try to fix it. Um, um, so, can you talk a little bit about how how to fix it? Because uh, um, I feel like earlier you suggested that uh, although perhaps Congress created this problem uh, by um, drafting these statutes the way they did, that uh, that the categorical approach is a judicial 
uh, approach to to this, and therefore um, you place some of the, uh, the blame on uh, on courts. But you also, um, despite blaming the courts for creating this model, I, I think have suggested that uh, courts are going to solve the problem as well. Yes, uh, so I I think that. Uh, from a standpoint of efficiency, I think that courts are in the best position. And really, at this point, it has to be the Supreme Court um, because they, uh, you know, like, like you said, and like I've said in my paper, uh, this is the gift that keeps on giving uh, because it seems like every term. So last term, I, there, there were three cases um, on ACA and, and the different some of the different applications of the categorical approach. Uh, this term, uh, there have been two, uh, and you know that doesn't seem to be slowing down anytime soon. Uh, so, you know, let let let's talk about kind of some of the different ways that maybe the court could step in and do a little course correction here, uh, because you know asking Congress to do this you know, good luck getting Congress to do anything these days. And so, you know, the court kind of spilt the milk. Uh, and I think they're in the best position to wipe it up and, and you know, do a little course correction. And they're certainly uh, within their power to do so. So um, one of the one of the things that I suggested is um, to pivot from a, an elements based approach where you're where you're comparing elements from the federal to the state elements uh, to pivot from that to a conduct based approach. Uh, so uh, what what that would be is you would still have that first step. You determine uh, Congress said burglary counts, so the courts are going to determine what does burglary mean for us. All right, let's get the federal definition of burglary. And if this, uh, if this offender committed a burglary in Iowa, let's look at his or her conduct. What did they actually do? Did they burgle the building? Did they go in there with a weapon and so on? And what did they take? Um, and so the burglar in Iowa, who did the same thing as the burglar in Missouri, they would be punished the same. They would get the same outcome. If we're comparing conduct um, as opposed to comparing the different state elements and what I think that does, um, and, and no solution is perfect, but what I think that does is it gets us closer to the goal of uniformity. If uniformity is important to the federal system, I think that is the best way um, that a court can quickly pivot, save a little bit of face and just say, we're going to focus more on the conduct here so that we can make sure we're punishing similar conduct similarly. Um, and, you know, there, there's also been a discussion in the literature about, which you teased at before as well, um, is uniformity, is this type of uniformity even possible? And um, some people um, are quite comfortable with, with non-uniformity. And, uh, you know, that that is also an option. But my point is, if you're going to pivot away from uniformity, then let's just call this what it is and and admit that you are allowing 
disparate sentencing based on uh, what I see as um, a, a an irrelevant uh, characteristic of a criminal's past, which is basically where they happen to commit the crime. So, um, you know, we can pivot away from the elements-based approach to get closer to uniformity, or, you know, another option is just to say, uniformity is just too difficult. Let's just call it what it is and let's pivot away from uniformity and come up with some other justifications, uh, primarily that, yeah, this is a federal system. And yeah, we do accept that states, that state definitions have impact on federal law. So let's accept that. And, and let's, let's kind of coalesce a doctrine that accepts that as opposed to trying to marry the two, trying to say we have a uniform system, but we're going to treat people differently. Thank you. Um, no, I think that's, well, I certainly come out uh, on, on that side myself. Um, so well, Sheldon, this, um, this has been great. And I find that um, on an area where, that I really knew nothing about, there, I have a million more questions that I would like to ask, but uh, we're sort of uh, starting to run out of time. And so I will uh, let people who want to sort of dig in more, read the article, the categorical non-uniformity. Uh, instead, I'll just sort of leave off by asking you, is there anything else you'd like to talk about uh, or say before we, we end the show? Uh, well, I, I just want to, uh, you know, thank you for the opportunity. Um, and, you know, this is, this is such an important issue, um, especially in, in our time where, uh, we are really asking difficult questions as a society when it comes to um, rethinking criminal punishment, uh, decarceration, as well as immigration reform. Um, and so, you know, this is just kind of one contribution that I that I hope gets people thinking about that uh, as we do think about more uh, systemic changes um, in how we treat. Uh, criminal offenders, and also how we treat uh, non-citizens um, in, in some really uh, life-changing and impactful uh, punishments that, that we as the people and that the government um, hand out. So um, very excited about this piece. I'm, I'm happy to, to contribute my, my small part of this, and, and I look forward to uh, contributing more to this conversation. Thank you. All right. Well, um, well actually, before I, uh, I wrap up, uh, is the piece on SSRN, uh, is it out for publication, uh, you know, for offers? Uh, um, is it available for people to um, to read if they'd like? Yes. So uh, you can find it on my SSRN page. Um, I, I, I won't uh, try to spell out the link, but... Oh. Uh, we'll put it in the uh, the show notes so people yes and um i i was um I, i'm very fortunate and thrilled um to uh, that 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 I, I am working to get it published um and it, it's going to be appearing in the columbia law review uh in i believe the november issue uh so very excited to work with with the folks at columbia uh for that that's a great result all right uh 
Thank you very much, Sheldon. Uh, tonight, my guest has been Sheldon Evans, an assistant professor at St. John's University School of Law, talking about his article, The Categorical Non-Uniformity, well, non not, not The Categorical Non-Uniformity. Uh, and um, the link to the article will be on uh, in the show notes. Uh, it's available on SSRN. Uh, Sheldon, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Matt. Take care. Take care. Yep. <laughs> Punishment fit the crime, the punishment fit the crime. And make each prisoner pin willingly represent a source of innocent merriment, of innocent merriment. Let the punishment fit, let the punishment fit, let the punishment fit the crime, the crime, the crime. 